chemicals are not for pussies. Dutch femcare brand Yoni does not beat around the bush when it comes to advertising tampons, pads and liners. And why should they? Their goal is to have proper conversations about menstruation and normalize the subject instead of medicalizing it. Yoni was founded in 2014 by longtime friends Mariah and Vendeline. Organic, biodegradable products, simple packaging design and their straightforward communications put Yoni on mainstream retail shelves. Markt, Albert Heijn and Ethos are household names in Holland, but the ambitions are to become a brand for women worldwide. Welcome to The Idealists, I'm Simon and I'm joined by Celia, your host for today's episode. We had the pleasure to meet Mariah Manswelt back at the Impact Hub Amsterdam. She's the CEO and co-founder, voice and storyteller of the company. After finishing her master's in international development, she spent several years working for NGOs before starting Yoni. Their twin track approach is pretty revolutionary for the film care industry. First, Yoni shares knowledge and presents it in a way that actually challenges how we talk about periods. Secondly, they provide a superior product that guides other companies to follow suit. But let's go back to the beginning. Why would you start a tampon company in the first place? I don't think it's ever your like little girl dream to have a tampon company. That's just not it's something. Not, right? no, okay. no, no, I, never maybe, on the list. Maybe nowadays there will be girls that grow up with right. that dream, but uh, it was definitely not mine. And. I never thought I'd be in business uh, to start out with. So I have a master's in international development. I worked uh, with Doctors Without Borders uh, for a long time uh, here at the headquarters in Amsterdam, but also in the field in South Sudan. I was a social worker working with mostly my expertise became like moms uh, with a very low IQ, borderline um, children uh, taken away generally and kind of being the in-between person. I became a yoga teacher. Uh, so I was doing lots of the other things, um, but nothing right. in business. And for me, I always had this very clear idea from as young as I can remember that I'm here on earth to make a positive change. And for me, business was about profit making. Right. And that didn't seem to be, yeah, mm. for me, the opposite. Mm. Um, so I never really thought that I would actually get into business. Right. And Right now, I actually think is a really interesting time. I mean, I obviously have gotten myself into Mm -hmm. business and I'm sure we'll get to that story of how I got there. But at this point of time, I think it's actually really interesting. It's something that I was kind of um, during my studies in international development having troubles with, like what is the way forwards in the NGO world? I think there's a lot to be said about that. Um, And that's why I chose specifically for humanitarian work because I thought it was less problematic and Doctors Without Borders really... Uh, saving lives and alleviating suffering. It's very little to, uh, and they have a lot of debates internally Mm. about what they're doing, but I think the overall messaging, everybody pretty much can understand and get on board with. But for me at this point of time to see how we can use business as a force for good um, is really interesting. And I always explain it as I believe we've compartmentalized up till now our spiritual, social, and professional lives. And at this point of time, it's our challenge to integrate our spiritual and social lives Mm -hmm. within our professional lives, where we at this point of time are at our like strongest, um, at our most powerful, and that will necessarily lead to people using uh, business as a force for good. 
And I think anyone can do that from wherever they are, however small. And it uh, it sounds maybe conceptual, but it is actually, I think, really quite concrete uh, when you start thinking about it. So I always explain, you know, like social is how do I take care of the people I in my like kind of love circles, mm-hmm. my family mm-hmm. and my child. And then spiritual for a lot of people is whoa, are you going to start oming here? (laughs) Um, um, And if I really have to be very practical about what I mean with spirituality, I mean your connection and understanding with the world outside of your little love circle Mm -hmm. and understanding that the environment and people that are different further away from you um, are still connected to you. And for me specifically, spirituality is my connection with everything. Yeah. So you don't have a business role and a mom role and in, in how you lead the company? I mean, I try to do that from the same space of being present where I am. I think um, a lot of women and men, but women maybe more specifically, struggle with having a career and being a mom. And I definitely like finding that kind of uh, life work balance is like an ongoing challenge. But one of the things that I really try to do is be present at work and be present with my daughter. And my daughter is amazing because the moment I pick up my phone, she'll correct me. <laughs> well, yeah. learn a lot from that. And coming to, to Yoni and, and that what you said is that you kind of separated that kind of business world from the things you want to pursue in life in the, in the beginning in 2013, I think was the founding date of Yoni or maybe a little bit before when it, when it all started. When was this point in time when you kind of realized, okay, this is maybe, you know, it's not separated or the other way around, I have to use this and, and play this game to make a bigger impact myself? Well, I mean, the seed for Yoni was really planted within a very personal experience. So in the Netherlands, when you're 30, you receive um, an invitation to have a checkup for cervical cancer. And I did that and found out that I unfortunately was developing cervical cancer at that point of time. And so luckily still in developmental stages, um, but my world uh, stopped for a bit and I had to go in and out of hospitals and eventually have an operation. I kept asking all of my doctors, what can I do to further support my health? And a lot of my doctors, I'm an American, so I know the American system Mm -hmm. and I know the Dutch system and I can say not nice things about both of them Uh, (laughs) um, and positive things about both of them. And the one positive thing that you can say about the American system, if you're in that system, is that they'll give more holistic advice. And a negative thing that you can say about the uh, more inclusive Dutch system is that they'll stick with the protocol. And so as a woman going to a gynecologist, I'm asked, Uh, how much I drink, do I do drugs, and that I shouldn't smoke for sure. That's pretty much it. And so I kept asking, you know, yeah, like what else could I do? Mm -hmm. Um, And finally, one of my doctors advised me to switch from using synthetic products to organic cotton tampons and pads to prevent further irritation of that part of my body. And I was like, I didn't need to hear all that much more. I was ready to make that change, but I just couldn't find the products at my supermarket or drugstore. And I also wondered like, why have I not heard about this before? Because I was a yoga teacher at that point of time already. And I'd go to like organic stores for certain types of shopping. And I'd never just never had read anything or nothing had ever triggered me to question my use of my most intimate products, basically. And so for two years, this was 
super personal. Um, and I'd go to my special store for my special tampons, but most women can understand that that's a really unhandy situation to be in. And so every time that I went to like, uh, the airport or to mm -hmm. my parents' house mm -hmm. who live outside of Amsterdam, I couldn't get to my special store. Right. So very inconvenient. Super solution, inconvenient. Right? Yeah. Super inconvenient. So, uh, it was a Sunday and, you know, funnily enough, I was talking to someone this Sunday was somewhere in the beginning of 2013 and I can remember that day like really, really well. So I was reading the book, The 4-Hour Work Week. So I was somehow already in the mindset and had been playing around with very different types of ideas for maybe an own business or doing something on my own. Um, was biking across Amsterdam through the rain on the Sunday to get to this one store that right. was open, went and got my organic cotton tampons, came out and um, told my boyfriend at the time, I'm like, why can't I just buy these at any other store? And, you know, if I can't do it, like maybe I should make this happen. And then later that day, I went and had tea with my friend, started talking to her about this. And she said, when the lean co-founder of Yoni said, you know, but uh, what are my products? What are so special about yours? You know, aren't mine just made out of cotton? We got out the boxes of her products. And that's when we realized that there is no list of ingredients mentioned on the packaging of these products. Um, and for any other care product, be it like your toothpaste, shampoo, name it, you'll Long find list. like a list of ingredients. Mm -hmm. You might not mm -hmm. understand it, but you could look into those things right. if you really wanted to. You have the feeling you could research it yeah, if you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, right? that there's like some sort of transparency mm -hmm. to you as a consumer, but for these products, there's nothing. And later, not on that Sunday afternoon, but later we found out that um, tampons and pads just fall under general product regulation uh, in the EU, which means that there really is no specific regulation on what should or should not go into the product or what should or should not be mentioned on the packaging itself. Did this change already? I think, no, I don't think so um, necessarily from a, a regulatory perspective. We have seen some changes in the industry aiming to be more transparent. So now if I go to one of like, because they're basically four enormous companies that mm -hmm. uh, make femcare products and have been doing so for uh, as long as we mm -hmm. can remember um, and dominate worldwide the femcare space. And nowadays, if you go to their website and you click like maybe five times, mm -hmm. there's an organic <laughs> the section. Q &As, there might, there might right. be a part that explains mm -hmm. uh, what goes into their products or yeah. what their products are made from. At that point of time, when we called them, because that was part of, kind of our research mm -hmm. phase mm -hmm. uh, that we entered into after that Sunday, um, the person you get on the phone, they didn't have an answer for you. It just wasn't part of their, like, the customer care that they were providing. Nobody mm -hmm. was asking this question. And so on that Sunday, we really said, actually, the two things that we still do today is, one, we made an assumption without doing any very expensive market research. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we made the assumption, which is rightly so, that if we as quite conscious, health conscious women had never heard about this, then most likely most women hadn't. Um, that was right. And so we decided, you know, every woman should be able to know what their products are made from and every woman should be should have this information that mm -hmm. there are different choices. So we want to share the story. And two, it needs to be made available because you can know, but if it's not available, then like you have that information and it's not very useful. Um, so we want to get the organic cotton option on shelves where you can find the synthetic options. And that was something that really had not happened yet. I don't think at all. Um, and so that's how we, that's basically like what we set out to do. And we spent a few months, you know, researching 
neither of us had any experience right. in the femcare industry. It wasn't like we were coming from it yeah. from that perspective. So we looked into it, you know, is there not another brand we could just kind of lift or do we really want okay. to do this? So it was not the idea from the beginning to start your own company. That was not the starting point was we want to make this change. Mm -hmm. And guessing both of us had some sort of willingness. I mean, you have to have some sort of willingness. Like, I want to take this on and start a company. Yes, yes. Um, um, but we weren't researching ideas before then for other companies with each other. This wasn't one of the 10 ideas that um, passed through. The, this was the idea. And it I think found you. It found us. It found us. Well, and it didn't only find us. I mean, I really do believe that. And there are more people that speak about this. So I'm not the only crazy one. Um, <laughs> but an idea like is somewhere in our shared consciousness and it lands with someone and someone does something with it and it may land with someone else who also does something with it and it'll land with a lot of people who don't even notice it's there um, or who block it out or right. whatever, but it will find its way through. And I think around that same time, there were a number of other people picking up on uh, kind of the same thing. And this, uh, so it's not only Yoni, but it, together with a number of other small uh, businesses, startups, um, we've really changed, I believe, the femcare space for good. Mm -hmm. And do you think this on this exact Sunday, it does, did it help to to be in Amsterdam and did it help to be in this in this country where where it's where I have the feeling or where I have the perspective that it's easier or that people are more the doers than in other countries that they, they start if they you know if they if there's an itch they they do something about it is that I mean, something I don't, you I, it's hard it's hard for me to say because i haven't uh, i mm. haven't been like you guys going to 12 <laughs> different cities in 12 and 12 months so i can't really speak on this one i think it does help both when Aline and i both have international backgrounds um and so we always set up the business with the idea okay we're starting here in our home base but it's going to be an international brand. This mm -hmm. isn't something just for Holland. And plus, if you see the volumes that you need and stuff, um, it can't be right. limited to yeah. the Netherlands. It, so it's small. I think it helps that the Netherlands is so small mm -hmm. to be able to do things. But in the, on the other hand, I mean, I see a lot of things going on in the US where I believe also people have this kind of attitude of let's go do mm -hmm. something. Yeah, talking about the the female hygiene market. I mean, it's if you look the numbers up, it's crazy, right? It's, it's a giant market and it's growing, still growing over the next years, prospectively. And well, how in do a, you in feel a, In now? a sense, it's a mature market. Eh? Um, so, I mean, in Europe, they're not going to be more women using these products necessarily. So in that sense, it's not really a growing market. I think the growth comes from countries where women haven't been using these products um, and so that's been the focus of these four main giants in the femcare industry exactly. to be looking in those growth markets. Um, and what you now see is growth because, uh, well, to be honest, an organic cotton product is more expensive than just your any other uh, synthetic product. Um, so there has been value growth, I think, in the past uh, while within uh, the market. And... And yeah, I mean, I mean, I believe at the end of the day, hopefully we'll be actually moving towards even more uh, reusable products. Um, and so that we won't be seeing so much growth mm. in this market mm -hmm. um, at all. I think that would be the right way forwards. You said that the, the growth now comes probably from, from countries which have a big part in, in consumer education, right? Where this is something which is just introduced or which more people get introduced to. And you say your outset is, is international, right? You, you look at the international market. So how 
what, how far are you with the plans of taking on the world? Um, step by step. I mean, these things are uh, slightly more complicated. Everything is more complicated than you might think from the start and the mm -hmm. get go. <laughs> Luckily, you never know about any of the challenges that you're going to come across when setting up a business because other, I don't think otherwise you wouldn't would, do it. Probably. Yeah, you just probably <laughs> wouldn't do it. I think it's like um, I used to really enjoy watching these programs where uh, they build houses. People build houses. And there's always a point in the program where people are like, I'm, oh, I wish I never did. <laughs> did this and, and at the end they're always really happy <laughs> but there's always that middle part where right. they're like oh everything's a disaster it's more expensive it's taking way more time no 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 uh, same with uh, building a company um, and so at the moment our home base still the Netherlands super important it's where we for the first time really made that change to get on mainstream shelves um, the UK we're also mainstream uh, Benelux so you know Belgium Luxembourg and slowly a bit of Germany, France, and there's some other countries there, but I wouldn't say we're on the big mainstream uh, shelves yet. Any plans for Denmark? Um, well, I think we do have some contacts in Denmark. Um, so yeah, who knows? We Our design is, I uh, think we're an, a, a nice match. Right. Mm -hmm. And we kind of skipped a step now from from the initial idea to uh, hitting <laughs> hitting the, the mainstream shelves and going global. What what was the process now in the last uh, four or five years of, of how, you know, developing a product? I, I think it was one part. And the other part is probably communicating it and, and educating in a sense that, uh, oh, sh this is an imp important topic, right? Yeah. This is... Um, in that sense, in 2016, we won um, the Middle and Small Business Award for Most Innovative Company in the Netherlands. But um, funnily enough, and to a lot of people's annoyance, um, it was not because our product is very innovative and we didn't need to develop that product. It was a product that was available. You just had to source it. And so we found uh, partners to source with within Europe. Um, something that we felt was important and that had a certified supply chain, etc. So really our focus, and that's why we uh, were the most innovative company mm -hmm. in 2016, was because of our communications right. around the product and the placement into the mainstream where it had been totally niche um, worldwide beforehand. Um, and so breaking open that space for this type of organic product and with the message. And we uh, had lots of fun talking about that because, I mean, in that sense, and maybe not even so much of a realization when we started out, I mean, menstruation and everything menstruation related is a taboo subject. Um, and the large companies that have dominated uh, the femcare space have been the ones who have set out kind of not a dialogue, but more like a monologue towards consumers about what tampons, pads, menstruation, how you should feel about that. And they, on the one hand, if you look when uh, pads were developed and later when tampons uh, were developed, both of these developments, when they were commercialized, go hand in hand with um, like the first wave of feminism. So when women had to start working more out of the house, they needed a way to be able to deal with menstruation. And that's when you have the pad coming in or uh, gaining uh, voting rights went hand in hand almost with the development of the commercialized tampon as we know it today. And so they brought so much freedom uh, along with them. But at the same time, what um, the suppliers did with these products was they played on the taboo that's always been around uh, about menstruation. So the taboo around menstruation has been 
I tried to like dig back when, how did that come about? But in all, almost all main religions, there's some sort of taboo around it. And so I think, I believe the women's body and I guess the human's bodies for a long time just weren't understood that well. And menstruation was definitely not understood. And something that's not understood like menstruation can be seen as on the one hand, maybe something kind of magical or mythical, but on the other hand, something potentially really dangerous. Um, so let's build uh, uh, some rules and regulations around that to make sure uh, that it doesn't, uh, that you don't potentially die or uh, right. whatever. Um, yeah. I mean, for the longest time, don't it was really thought, much. yeah, it was really thought like if a menstruating woman would touch flowers, they would wilt. I mean, all these very strange. That was a way of sugarcoating something. Yeah, yeah, true. And so what these large companies have done is they played upon that taboo saying, you know, this is the problem. It's a problem. Menstruation is a problem. It's not normal. It's a problem. It's something more medicalized. Um, and we have the solution and that works really well. And we're going to keep it secret. Mm -hmm. um, no nobody has to know about yeah. it. Um, and then making a scent a problem. So it smells. So you need uh, some sort of uh, perfumes or these type of things, wipes. Blah, blah, blah. And so that's been done, I think, very well and in ways that have, strangely enough, gone hand in hand with a lot of freedom that we've won as women. But now is the time, I think, that there's also becoming more realization. Like, wait one second. This is something normal. It's actually quite important to understand your cycle as a woman because there are a lot of touch points on how are you and your health um, or how does your reproductive health work if you want or do not want to have children. And so women are starting to want to know what goes, what, what are the products that they're using within their body and why is something so normal medicalized? And I believe that's where we need to break away from medicalizing menstruation, but uh, to normalizing it basically. And so this is why there was so much space for us to communicate really differently and have a lot more fun with it because I mean, we didn't need to look to the industry for inspiration. There was no inspiration to be found. Uh, white leggings, blue fluids, uh, not interesting whatsoever packaging that I don't think had ever been like very outdated, nothing design about it, nothing nice. And for us, we clearly had this feeling like, okay, the way that we want to make the packaging look is like something you'd want in your bathroom because it's going to be in your bathroom. Like, why can it not just look nice? Which is also a reason why people buy it in the first place, probably without knowing the whole backstory or knowing about the uh, organic cotton versus synthetics or other plastics or whatever. So um, I think the power of design and storytelling in your way is also maybe get people's attention and then they have the wake up moment uh, yeah. later. Yeah. For uh, people who are uh, design oriented, it works very well that way. <laughs> no. Right. And, um, and I mean, so there was, it was a really fun and we started with our crowdfunding campaign. That was um, kind of the end of 2015, 14, 2014. And uh, with the name Chemicals Are Not For Pussies. And we had tons of fun with that. And I sent out like 200 emails in two days to right. any kind of like press I can email I could find with the header Chemicals Are Not For Pussies. And we received so much feedback and coverage because this was a story that in the Netherlands had not been told before that mm -hmm. just wasn't told. And if you look back from where we are now, that's really changed. Right. And is this, Yoni as a company, is this, what would you say is the, the bigger challenge, communicating it and changing that um, topic f away from taboo to normalization or getting the product out, hitting the shelf? I, I mean, it's connected in, in that sense. Would you say your main challenge is 
changing that taboo or you know changing the industry in in a product way that you say we have the better product which is better in the end for your health yeah they're connected in a way i think there there are different challenges on and different levels with both i mean it's in our world um and with the creative i'll say call them creative budgets we have mm -hmm. i mean you can just tell from your own social media you get bombarded with things so to be able to stand out within that is a challenge it's always a challenge for anyone who has any type of messaging uh it's a challenge to get picked up and Working with large retailers is also challenging because, yeah, they think it's really cool that you have an awesome story and la la la, but uh, you have to continuously remind them that you're not Procter and Gamble, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and that they you need a different type of uh, approach uh, to be able to do business with you and for you to be able to do be to business with them. So there are challenges on both sides. What, what I see, not just in femcare, but also different categories, the, the rise of direct-to-consumer. And we talked about it before. It, it was always important to, to be next to all the other products because that's where the decision is made. Is that also the reason why you said it can't be just direct-to-consumer? We have to be Yeah, we made a very, a very clear choice in the beginning. So I see a lot of also uh, subscription service models. Um, which are great. I also question a little bit the viability um, because I've also looked into that, obviously, and it's just hard because it's a cheap product um, and sending and packing and repacking is an expensive business. So I think a lot of people don't realize the cost um, of also maintaining that consumer. I think it's a bit underestimated. Different story. But for me, at that point of time, setting up uh, that type of business, like an online business and setting up a business that's ready to deal with large retailers. It's kind of two different ball games. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt that getting on the shelf next to the four main players was so important because that's the only, that's only then are they going to make a change. They're going to be forced to take a look at what's going on. If I'm just online, it doesn't really matter so much uh, to them, maybe at some point of time, um, but not anytime soon. And getting on the shelves and getting them basically off the shelf or having to have them to make space for me on the shelf, that is going to be, then you're playing their game. Mm -hmm. Then they're going to be looking at you and then they're going to listen to an extent. And I do see the changes and I don't think it would have happened if we would have stayed direct to consumer. You mentioned the, you know, the, your competitors, your kind of old school competitors now coming up also with kind of organic products or, you know, putting at least putting labels on it and, and trying to convince uh, customers or consumers that they are doing the right thing as well. Um, you said it's probably the, you're, you're part of the reason why they're doing this now. And the other thing would be that the consumers are demanding it in, in that sense. Is this kind of a win-win situation that you know the big corporations have to change because consumers demanding it and you kind of feeding that fire to kind of profit from that as well yeah no i believe i want to see a change in the femcare industry i don't think we should be staying a, i mean it was like 50 years of almost no zero comma zero innovation or whatever and that innovations could so easily uh come from these big companies who have a, a much larger budget and could research a thousand things and they knew about organic cotton products way before i did ever um, but they're not making the change. And so um, to see them start to change, I think, is really important. And whether 
it will be them changing or us changing or I don't really care who changes as long as we have change. Right. And I think just because, I mean, there's been some changes in products or whatever, but I don't believe like there's still a role for us to play to make sure that it's it becomes part of their DNA. Um, and it's not just, I mean, making also an organic cotton product next to their synthetic products. When, when will the whole uh, range get a review? Or why do the synthetic products not have a biodegradable uh, plastic backing like our pads do? I mean, and how much of an impact would that be if they wouldn't be able to make that change? Or um, how are, when and when are they going to start talking about reusables? Um, so for that, I think it's, there's a long road to go. And where do you think it has to start for the bigger players? Who makes the call there? I don't exactly know. I mean, I think uh, if you have, I think that can work in different ways. And I think it probably has to work in multiple different ways because one, they're going to be looking at what the market is doing. And so if they're seeing uh, players like us doing well, then they're going to be interested and they see that there's a demand from the consumers, then they'll play into that demand. That's the game that they've played. And I also do believe that you can have people within a company who are more forward thinking um, and who are taking uh, on ideas of sustainability in ways that that haven't been done before and that those people can play a really big role if they're supported in a way. So I think multiple ways. And would a beautiful future then for Yoni be making yourself redundant because all the products are on that level that you want it to be and the taboo maybe has transformed into a more normal topic? Or would it be the other way around that you see Yoni as kind of the new player in global femcare market? Uh, or, do, or does it even matter? I don't, yeah, I, it's obviously my investors would want me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Off the record. No, no, I don't know. At this point of time, it's it's not a worthwhile uh, question to uh, spend time on because it's we're not there yet. Right. And um, I think in that sense, uh, there's a definite role for us to play and to continue to play and to push on. Otherwise, I think it's, two early days um, and then, oh, this was a trend, not working, done. Um, and there needs to be someone uh, who is innovative enough to push messages and who really cares about the message being pushed and not just uh, looking at the demand from the consumer point of view. Coming back quickly to the communication topic, I think, when, when was the time when you won the, the most innovative? Uh... Was September 2016. Right. Okay. So the time you were starting and, and gaining traction was certainly the time of, call it, peak social media or, or the where social media had probably the biggest role it maybe will ever have. Um, now we're seeing lately developments, you know, people are changing their behavior with how they see social media influencing their lives and kind of being more aware of that. How do you see then your role changing with the mediums changing? Well, all of a sudden I'm doing lots of podcasts. <laughs> well, whereas like uh, two years ago, I never had done a podcast before. Right. So, I mean, there are certain things where you're like, okay, now it's podcast time. <laughs> uh, we're even thinking of doing a podcast. Right. Um, um, But there's a reason for that, yeah, right? Yeah, no, so there's have, a definite reason. Yeah. So we, we play into those changes or like, I mean, personally, um, Facebook is no longer on my phone. I never look at it. And then Instagram has become... Uh, more of a part of my life mm -hmm. than I might want it to be. Mm 
I mean, I think that's where it's important to also keep young people on board and to make sure that you have your eyes open and not only follow uh, what I know um, to be true. Um, and from the beginning, I think that's something that we were quite clear on. I'm um, and have always been good in including other people who have different views and added value and not just thinking that you know it all, because uh, for sure I don't. <laughs> and you just mentioned um, bringing people on board. How has this journey been for you from a co-founder? It's been you and your best friend in the beginning, and then you add suddenly other people to the team. That transition to maybe more co-founder to CEO If you can share some yeah, insights no, on the journey. Yeah, definitely felt like a really big transition and a very clear transition as well from like eating lunch behind your computer to having to have team lunches. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, just something so silly change. like that. Right. No, yeah. So silly, but uh, to have to think about what type of culture do you want or how are you going to uh, take care of the people around you or understanding that if you just kind of look sideways at some type of behavior that uh, people then assume that you're buying into that type of behavior. And if you don't want that behavior that you need to speak out always, uh, which is something that's really tiring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that's been, it's been a journey and I luckily have had a lot of people that I can ask advice for and yeah, have also had to start trusting myself as well in that um, and not thinking like, oh, this is the first time I might not know because at the end of the day, I need to be happy with the decisions that I'm making. It's my company, nobody else, uh, like somebody can come and have coffee with me and give me all types of advice, but they go home and do whatever they want. Right. Um, and I'm the one who has to deal with the shit the next day yeah, and yeah. the next day and the next day or whatever. So um, feeling more comfortable in my role and trusting that I know best at the end mm -hmm. of the day how I want or what I want my company to be and look like. How, how big is the team now? We're with about 10 of us. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what are the biggest roles in your team of 10? What, what, how is it split? So I think we have like um, sales and marketing, two women on sales, uh, three people on marketing being kind of in the broadest sense of the world, also supporting sales. So it might be two and a half sales, two and a half marketing. And then we have like a business controller and uh, supply chain uh, management, uh, someone who's doing their PhD uh, following Yoni for the past two years, wow. uh, looking how a company like Yoni incorporates purpose uh, within mm -hmm. a profit-making company. So he's always super interesting because you can speak off the record mm. with him. He's also the only male within our team um, and has been around uh, the longest almost. Um, I mean, obviously I've been around the longest, but of the other team members mm. has been around uh, for a long time. And so for me, it's kind of nice to have someone who's slightly apart from the team, um, but has seen so mm -hmm. many of the developments and sometimes to reflect on those developments. So the, kind of the outsider inside, but yeah. also, yeah, yeah. Very interesting yeah. role. And you just briefly mentioned the role of the investors or people um, giving you support around your, believing in your mission in the end. What was the development of, of that relationship? Well, we were, I mean, from the beginning, we had a group of friends, family, and fans uh, that invested in Yoni. And those were actually really 
people that were close uh, to me and Wendelin, uh, my co-founder. And later, you kind of move away from that and um, get into other types of relationships with people that you don't know necessarily. And for us, it was always important to take people on board who understood we weren't like some sort of tech company going uh, times 14 uh, right. in a year or whatever, mm -hmm. um, um, who would give us a bit of space to develop the business um, and who understood uh, the impact that we were trying to have and bought into that rather just than like the commercials. Um, at this point of time, I've entered into like a new type of relationship with an investor who has like an investor vehicle behind him. He maintains that contact. I have contact with them once every quarter, once every half year. And otherwise I see him once a week and we've taken uh, him on board because uh, of his added value to the company. And to me, I found that after a while, uh, if you have to work with investors, I uh, love uh, to hear people's stories where they haven't had to use investors. Um, unfortunately, definitely not in that uh, uh, space, but you can spend a lot of time uh, with investors mm -hmm. and, that's time that I can't spend on the business. And it's also generally a type of time that I don't really feel energized from necessarily. And so now that I have this one working relationship and the business gets more and more complex, so mm -hmm. it's also really difficult to get useful uh, guidance from someone unless you spend a lot of time mm -hmm. like talking them right. up to speed. Right. And so now I have a weekly relationship. I don't have to explain everything. Mm. I can get the advice that I want. I have a person to kind of like bounce ideas mm. off mm. of to, you know, that type of thing with. Um, and there's a real added value. And what are the next steps for Yoni? I think at this point of time, we're really busy focusing on expanding the business um, and to see how to expand that message and how that translates in different markets. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to know more, head over to theidealist.co. As always, there's one more thing we ask our guests, which is who should we talk to next? Not that I'm not inspired by other business leaders, uh, but I get my inspiration generally from like outside of business. But I think Dr. Bronner um, has a really an amazing uh, business and is super inspiring. So maybe doing an interview with one of the Bronners. <laughs> <laughs>